I want to welcome you all again. If, uh, if uh, you're here uh, in person at our uh, new campus, our first Easter in the Museum District. This is very exciting, very exciting, yes. And of course, we got our people joining us online as well. Welcome to our online campus. Thank you. Wherever you are in the world, if you're tuning in, you're part of the story today. And um, there's no more important day than Easter. We have a lot to be thankful for. I'm just full of gratitude today for for um, this space, for all these services. It's the third one of five that we're having here, two more at Timber Grove this morning. And um, things are, are going haywire uh, behind the scenes. You don't even know. We didn't have power in this part of the building uh, at 7 a.m. We were outdoors doing our outdoor service, hoping the power would come back on because I was visualizing doing all five services out there. Man, I would have lost 20 pounds of sweat. <laughs> had we done all five out there, I would have had to go to the hospital after. But thankfully, it came back on and, uh, and we're indoors. And, and I'm just grateful for our staff. Um, if you see a staffer or a volunteer uh, making these services happen, be sure and thank them on the way out. I'm grateful for my powerhouse wife, Pastor Giovanna, who uh, continues to, to just drive this church's mission through this big transition we've been through. She just amazes me. I'm grateful for all of you as well. Before I get into Easter's message, I want to just tell you all, next Sunday we're starting a pretty exciting, I think, new series of messages called uh, True or False. And this is a fact-checking series. So we're going to, every week for the next seven weeks, explore controversial statements that you've pro <clears throat> probably heard, excuse me, um, being debated in the world, like uh, online or maybe in your, in your local coffee shop or in your own home. Um, next week's uh, statement that we're debating is uh, social media is evil. What do you think, true or false? All right, <laughs> seems to be some consensus on that one. Um, but I think it's more complicated than it might seem. And y'all will get to vote on every statement before the Sunday comes. So I'll be able to reveal the congregational vote and get y'all's gauge on it before I sort of unpack what Scripture has to say about each subject. And we got some other really hot-button controversial topics like uh, Christians should care about climate change is one of them. And uh, like... Um, Oh, something about God's preferred pronouns, which is going to be fun. <laughs> that, believe it or not, that is the Mother's Day sermon. So y'all get ready. All right. So not even, not even joking. All right. Uh, <laughs> so that's, we like to mix it up. We don't often uh, do like uh, cheesy, touchy-feely stuff on Mother's Day or when you might expect churches to. And that is actually by design. I once did a Mother's Day sermon on pornography. If that tells you anything, like we're, we're pushing envelopes all the time at the story. But there's this one tradition that we cling to, this tradition of, of every Easter we proclaim what we proclaimed earlier, this Christ is risen, he's risen indeed. And that is, by all accounts, the earliest Christian creed. So what we know, and this isn't just a biased biblical perspective, like Non-religious scholars have affirmed this, that within months or the years following Jesus' death on a cross, Christians were gathering and repeating this refrain. It, it goes back to the very beginnings of our faith. And um, they really believed it. They believed that Jesus physically rose. And one concern that I have about Easter today is that we have reduced it many, in many cases, not all of us, many Christians and, and borderline Christians, right? People that have one foot in, one foot out, which is very common. If that's you, I'm not judging you, but like, but you're not all in, but you're not all out, you know? 
A lot of times you get to that place because stuff like Easter is traditional. It's, um, it's optional even, or, or it's just a spiritual or sentimental reality. I want you to see that Easter is factual or it's nothing at all. That's what we're going to talk about today are the facts of Easter. And if, if you came here expecting a touchy-feely message on Easter, I'm going to let you down. But I do want you to seriously wrestle with the facts of Easter as I'm going to present them in a minute. I've been through this, my 43rd Easter now, and I've never missed an Easter at church. I'm a preacher's kid, uh, and so preacher's kids are condemned to be a part of every service every week. Um, and my poor kids have two preachers for parents, and so they, they just get every five services today. Every Sunday is always, y'all pray for them, all right? So um, they're, they're awesome, but they go through a lot. And, uh, and so 43 years, 43 Easter's at church. For the first 18 or so Easter's of my life, it was pretty much what you would expect. I mean, I was a preacher's kid in the Bible Belt. Small town, Red Lick, Texas. No one knows where that is. Don't feel bad. No one knows where that is. The closest town was Texarkana. And um, I grew up in Red Lick. And at, at the time, Easter in Red Lick always meant the same thing. And it meant, it meant good feelings, fuzzy, warm feelings. It meant traditions like the egg hunt, right? That's a wonderful memory. The egg hunts every year, the um, pretty girls in pretty dresses, and the, and the family dinner. It's like, man, even when all the rest of the world was going mad, everything with the world seemed right on Easter because of our traditions. Those are good things. I'm not here to diminish those things. One of the most important traditions in Red Lick for Easter was something called a passion play, which isn't as fun as it may sound. Passion Play is a theatrical production put on by amateur church members who act out. They get dressed up in everything, and we acted out the events of the final week of Jesus' life. And every year, the same guy played Jesus. Now, everybody else got different roles. When I was 12, I got to be 12-year-old Jesus. And, and then I think before that, I was like a sheep or something. I, I just wasn't a very glorified role. But, but every year, the same guy got to play Jesus. And I didn't know why at first. Over time, I started to understand the dynamics and the politics of our town. But, but the guy's name was Travis. I'll, that's what I'm going to call him. I'm not going to share his real name because I don't want him to get mad at me, okay? In case he's got the internet now. He didn't when I was little. Okay, so <laughs> Travis played Jesus every year. And he, the first memories that I have of Travis was when I was like five or six, and he was like 30 or 31, and Travis just looked the part. I mean, th that's one of the reasons why he got the role, I think, is because of all the men in Red Lick, uh, and there weren't a lot to choose from, right? But, but, but Travis just looked like the picture of Jesus that's on the wall of every Southern Bible Belt white church. This picture here is what Travis looked, I mean, just a little taller than average, kind of ruggedly good looking with an amazing mullet down the back of his neck. And that's what Travis looked like. And on top of that, Travis had something that most men in Red Lake didn't. He had a physique that could make the loincloth scenes work. And um, because, you know, in every passion play, there's the scenes where Jesus is on the cross and all he's wearing is a loincloth. There's not a lot of men in Red Lake that could pull that off. But Travis, Travis could at 30, at 30, but here's the problem. There's only one thing in the world that Travis loved more than playing Jesus in the Passion Play, and that was Coors Light. 
<laughs> and I don't know if you know about the male physique and what happens in your 30s, you start processing things differently. And all that beer you used to process and get rid of in your 20s and your 30s, it just starts to store up in your belly. That's obviously where the phrase beer belly comes from. And that's what happened to Travis. Even though he was drinking light beer, you couldn't tell. The beer belly was, was, was there on full display. The loincloth scenes got a little weird. I'm not going to lie. And everybody knew it, but nobody would say anything. Why? Because it's tradition. And Travis is a big boy, and he's, he's, he's a gun owner, so let's just let him be Jesus. You know, it's like everybody knew that it was wrong to have Jesus on the cross with a beer belly, but nobody did anything about it. Like, Travis, maybe this is the year you should play Herod or Pontius Pilate or something. Uh, nope, nope, he just kept playing Jesus. He could, for all I know, still be Jesus this year in Red Lick. Um, I haven't been back to a passion play in a while. But it didn't really matter because it wasn't about the facts of it all. It was about the tradition, the feel-good stuff, you know, and that was my first 18 Easter's in a nutshell. Well, some of you know my story. I went to college at 18 and um, got really my first taste of the world outside of small-town Bible Belt, East Texas. And it didn't take long for that, what faith I had to fall apart. Uh, I, I came under the influence of some very influential professors who had very... Um, very uh, strong opinions about Christians and Christianity. And they told me that unbeknownst to me, I had for 18 years been drinking the Kool-Aid. I had been uh, just one of the sheep. I have followed along in these, these ridiculous anti-intellectual paths and just taken whatever my religious leaders had told me as though it was the truth without doing my own homework. And I couldn't believe that I had fallen prey to that kind of, lunacy. I didn't want to be one of those people. And so I stopped calling myself a Christian. Now I still was sort of Christ adjacent. I called myself a follower of Jesus, whatever that is. I just didn't want to be labeled a Christian alongside all those flat earther Neanderthals back in Red Lake. I wanted to be better, smarter, more sophisticated, and, um, and, and more intellectual, even though I've never really been that smart. I just wanted to be set apart in some way. And so, uh, you know, I I kept going to church on Easter during that season of my life, which stretched on for like 13, 14 years. Church every year on Easter. I still said, Christ is risen, he's risen indeed, but I kind of had my proverbial fingers crossed behind my back when I said it. I didn't really believe the tomb was empty. I believed in, uh, in love rising up over hate and good outlasting evil and light outshining the darkness, that kind of stuff you get from Star Wars or your favorite you know, fantasy books or novels or, 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 or movies. I believed in those ideas, but I didn't believe the tomb was really empty. I, I was too sophisticated for that. So I adopted a more ethereal theology that could be summed up by this tweet that was sent out by a very famous formerly Christian singer-songwriter named Michael Gunger. He wrote that song, Beautiful Things, we used to always sing every other week in churches a few years back. And Gunger tweeted, Jesus was Christ, Buddha was Christ, Muhammad was Christ. Christ is a word for the universe, seeing itself. Ooh, Whatever that's supposed to mean, I'm not really sure, but it sounds brilliant. You are Christ, we are the body of Christ. This is the kind of thing I would say at that point in my life. Not really knowing what I was saying, but just wanting to sound confusing enough to where people I said it to 
thought I was smarter than them. <laughs> that was the goal. And oftentimes you'll run into people like that who don't really believe in anything in particular, so they just sort of throw everything at the wall and see what sticks in a very illogical way. That was my life. That was my theology during that time in my life. Now, I still believed in the ethics of Jesus. I want to make this clear. That's why I went into church work. That's why I went to seminary. I saw the church as a vehicle for those ethics. Love your enemy. Yes. Like protect the vulnerable. Absolutely. Love the immigrant. Welcome the stranger. Visit the prisoner. Look out for the, the poor, the outcast. Let's make sure that women have equal rights. Let's watch out for the rights of LGBT people. That was my life during that time, which sounds like a good way to live your life. But when those ideals are everything to you, you can never do enough to live up to them. It becomes a prison because there's always something else that you're not doing yet well enough. You're not good enough. And you can easily get into the cycle of self-hatred. And I remember having all kinds of dark thoughts during that time. Thoughts of divorce, thoughts of self-harm, thoughts of all kinds of things that led me into this spiral where I was addicted to pornography. I was a mess. I was always fighting with my wife and my family. And I, I was just absolutely toxic, even though I had these great ideals, these ethics of Christ. It was like I didn't have anything firm to stand on during that time. So the first season of my life was marked by these feelings uh, and traditions of religion. The second season of my life was marked by these feelings and ideas of, uh, of doing good and helping people in need as much as possible, and I ended up burning out, flaming out, and going all kinds of wrong ways. Many of you know that what happened next in 2013 was the game changer for me. So the story began in 2015, and just two years before that was when I became a Christian. And that happened in the Holy Land when I accepted an invitation to go on a trip to learn more about the Palestinians and what they were going through against uh, the Zionist oppression, and, and I wanted to know more about their plight. Never in a million years did I expect to come back to Kansas City where I was living from that trip like a Bible-thumping, borderline evangelical Christian. I hated those people. And yet that's exactly what happened to me. And it didn't happen because of feelings or preferences, opinions, ideas. It didn't happen because I wanted it to happen. It happened because of something concrete and factual that I had to face when I stood where Jesus stood. I'm going to talk about, with the rest of my time, the facts of the resurrection. Because I'm, I'm concerned that many people today have the idea that you have to accept the resurrection by blind faith if you're going to accept it at all. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Okay, so 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is where we're going to look at in Scripture. You have Bibles in the front of you, or you can follow along on the screen. On Easter only, I'll let you not hold a Bible while I do this, okay? Normally, I'm like, grab a Bible. Very, I'm very, like, fundamentalist about it. <laughs> like, uh, today, it's Easter, so I'm going to go easy, okay? So you can just uh, read along if you want to on the screen. 1 Corinthians 15, you may not know this, is probably the most important chapter in the New Testament. At least it's the most researched and debated chapter in the New Testament, the whole New Testament, 1 Corinthians 15, okay? So let's dig in. Uh, verse 1. Now, this is the Apostle Paul writing. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved 
if you hold firmly to the word that I preached to you. So he keeps talking about how he preached it to them. Scholars, religious and non-religious alike, know for a fact that Paul wrote this letter to the Corinth churches in the early 50s A.D., okay? Jesus died in 30 A.D. We think Paul wrote these in 53, 55 A.D., okay? But he's saying, I preached this to you before. So he, he first preached what we're about to say in uh, 47, 48, when he visited Corinth in person, okay? So just kind of keep these facts in mind for now. He says, uh, if you hold firmly the word that I preached to you, otherwise you've believed in vain. For, Paul says, what I received, I passed on to you. Before he preached it to them, he received it from somewhere else. And so scholars have looked at this and examined this and argued about this. And there's now pretty broad consensus that Paul must have received what we're about to read years before, after he became a Christian and stopped killing them, right? He was killing Christians. And then he became a Christian, and then he went into training. And we think that what he's about to repeat to the Corinthians was a refrain he learned as early as 35 or 36 AD, five to six years after the death of Jesus on the cross. That's early, y'all. That's, if any of y'all are like historians or you love history, y'all know that is early attestation for an ancient source like this. Okay, so for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. This is our first thing, our priority, he says. First, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, so he died. Second, that he was buried, he was buried in the tomb. Third, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. These are the three fundamental facts for which and around which we gather at Easter. We're not gathered here around feelings or traditions. We're gathered here around facts. Now you can take these facts or leave them or you can, you can argue them. But these are factual claims. First, that Jesus died on a cross. Now, to believe that Jesus died on a cross, you first have to believe that he lived. And there was a time during the post-enlightenment, like the white Western academics were like, we're the smartest people who've ever lived and way smarter than people that wrote the Bible. And Jesus probably was just a myth. Well, now there's way too much evidence in the Bible and outside of the Bible to the life of Jesus of Nazareth. So you've got the scripture obviously has multiple sources attesting to Jesus's life. You've got Josephus, the Jewish historian in the first century saying he lived. You've got uh, uh, Tacitus, the Roman historian. Neither of them were Christians, by the way, saying Jesus lived. So the idea of Jesus was just a myth, absolutely a myth. Okay, so the myth, the idea that he was a myth was a myth. Okay, so the most historically attested fact about Jesus's life was his death. More ancient sources talk about him being killed on the cross than any other fact about his life. So this is a factual claim. Jesus of Nazareth really did die on a cross. That's the first fact. And these are going to add up like a legal case, okay? The second fact is that Jesus was buried. He was buried in a tomb. Well, obviously he died, so of course he was buried, right? This is a given. No, no, no. There's more to it. It's important that he was buried because he was buried in a familiar tomb belonging to Joseph of Arimathea. Why does that matter? Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the Sanhedrin, a well-known Jewish leader. And that Sanhedrin was the governing body that convicted Jesus to die days earlier. And here we have the Christians writing these, these, these facts that this member of the Sanhedrin offered his family's tomb for Jesus to be buried what do we make of that? Do you really think that's a story that Christians would have made up? No. They hated the Sanhedrin. 
The Sanhedrin were the guys that convicted Jesus wrongly. You're not going to make a hero out of one of them. The reason Joseph of Arimathea is listed is because it's a fact, and it's because it's the gospel writer's way of saying, go ask him. If you, if you have any questions about where Jesus was buried and what happened afterward, go ask Joseph of Arimathea. Y'all know who he is and where to find him. He's in the Sanhedrin. Okay, third, Jesus, his tomb was empty. He rose on the third day. This is the tricky part, right, for skeptics. Because in our experience, guys that die horrible deaths don't tend to start walking around again a few days later. That's hard to believe. And if that's a bridge too far for you, I would invite you to at least accept the fact that the tomb was empty. This is a fact. The tomb must have been empty in order to spark everything that we know happened next in history. Now, how it got empty, maybe that's up for debate. When I was not a believer, when I used to cross my fingers that Christ is, I used to think that the disciples must have pulled a fast one, like they stole the body and then started a movement, a movement that I'm fine with, so I don't really care how we got here. It's like the facts of it are whatever they are. And so, but what really happened? What really happened? Well, the tomb must have been empty, and that's fact number three. Now, those uh, facts alone are uh, enough, I think, to, to start us toward a conclusion, but it's the fourth fact that really got me. And maybe it's what's going to reach you as well if you're struggling to believe that a man really rose from the dead. The fourth fact Paul talks about in verse 5 of the same chapter, 5 through 8, he said, and that Jesus appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, the one who denied Jesus three times. Cephas is just the Greek word. For rock, and that was Peter's nickname. Then to the 12, that's Jesus' chosen apostles. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. And Paul's like, most of them are still around, go ask them. What happened when they experienced Jesus after we all know he died on the cross? And then, uh, then to his brother James, to the other apostles, and then last of all, he appeared to Paul. Okay, so this is where things get weird, I think. Because we have multiple accounts, over 500 people at once, for example, of people who claim they had a personal encounter, a physical encounter with Jesus after he died on the cross. Now, you can say they lied, or you can, like some of the academics that need an explanation for this, you can say they were all smoking from the same pipe and uh, had the same hallucination or vision. Like that's the leading theory is the hallucination theory. They all shared the same vision of Jesus. That, that, now that would be a miracle. By definition, 500 people, the exact same hallucination at the same time. So the question is, it really begs the question, why try to work around a documented miracle like the resurrection by fabricating a brand new miracle like the hallucination? Well, it's because they're backed into a corner. When we stack all of these facts together, that Jesus died on a cross, he was buried in a familiar tomb, the tomb was empty three days later, and then all these people started saying that they'd seen Jesus. And those people started giving their lives away for that claim. And this is the key for me. 
when I started learning about how these people not only gave up their Sunday mornings to come to church because they believed in Jesus, these people gave up their lives, their jobs, their reputations, their families in some cases, their safety. They were hunted like animals and slaughtered like dogs in the street. Listen to this list of how some of the closest followers of Jesus were killed. According to the earliest sources, Matthew and Thomas killed by the sword. Mark was dragged through the streets of the city of Alexandria. Luke and Philip were hanged for their faith in Jesus. Bartholomew was skinned alive. Andrew was tied to a cross and left to die from exposure days later. Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, was shot to death by firing squad with bows and arrows. Paul, Barnabas, and John the Baptist were all beheaded. Peter was crucified upside down. And in all of history, all these recorded uh, stories and, and facts about how these men and, and women, too, laid down their lives for this radical, factual claim that Jesus rose and talked to them and interacted with them after his death. There is not one story of one believer who recanted, who said it's a lie. We made it up. We stole the body. And believe me, if there was one reputable Christian on record who said we lied and we stole the body, like you would know about it, and so would I. But not one did. You don't behave that way for a lie. And these people saw something. And I believe they saw the risen Jesus in the flesh after they watched him down a cross. And even secular scholars are, are now coming around to this. The German scholar, this one really gets me, because Gerd Ludemann was a, a scholar that my uh, anti-religious professors ha had us read in seminary and, and, and undergrad. Gerd Ludemann was a German New Testament expert, but he's dead now. Before he died, he wrote this stunning, stunning line in one of his books. He said, it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which he appeared to them as the risen Christ. What do you do with that? When I was in the Holy Land learning all these things and, and seeing many other instances, evidence of, of, of the actual resurrection of Jesus, I was stunned by the amount of evidence. And I was also disappointed in myself because I couldn't believe that I had fallen for it again. Just like I had been drinking the religious Kool-Aid for the first 18 years of my life, I just traded in one brand of Kool-Aid for another and started drinking the secular Kool-Aid for the next season of my life. I didn't do my homework because the evidence was there all along. And friends, that evidence, those facts have changed my life. Now, life hasn't gotten easier. If anything, we've just gone through probably the hardest season, the hardest year that my family and I have gone through so far. But, but something else has changed. The foundation on which I stand has changed so that I'm not any longer governed by the shifting feelings and emotions and opinions in my own heart or in my own mind. I'm instead governed by the facts on which I stand, the facts that that Jesus died, according to the scriptures, that he was buried in a familiar tomb, that that tomb was empty because he rose, and that he appeared to the early Christians. And those appearances were the spark that ignited a movement that changed the world to the extent that we sit here today in this formerly Christian science building that's now called the Story Church, 2,000 years later, worshiping the risen Savior. Not because we feel like him. It's not about our feelings. 
It's about the facts. And what I've learned is that the, the facts have the power to change how you feel. And I spent many, many years trying to get my feelings to change the facts and banging my head against the wall. And, and if you're struggling in any as aspect of your life, if, if your marriage is on the rocks or if you're like I was caught in like a, the addiction that I talked about earlier or if, or if you just don't feel it in your heart and like you think you should feel it at Easter or if you, you just feel like life is meaningless and you're wandering through this indifferent existence on planet Earth. Listen, I'm telling you, it's, it, it all goes back to the facts. You don't have to accept what Christians say on blind faith. Follow the facts to the truth. And you can stand on the facts of Easter. Jesus, in fact, lived. He taught what the Bible says he taught. He died. He rose. And he appeared. And he's with us today. And if he overcame the darkness of death, he is formidable enough to overcome whatever darkness you're in. That's why we're not shaken when life gets hard. Like I was in that past season when I would go in tailspins of depression. Not anymore. I'm not shaken when life gets hard because I'm standing on the firm foundation of the fact, the risen Jesus. And I believe you can trust that. And I pray that you will. And if you've been wandering, teetering on the brink, or if you've fallen down, if you're 18 years old and full of doubt, 30 years old and self-assured, 40 years old and full of beer like Travis. <laughs> if you're, whatever you've done, whoever you are, it doesn't matter in light of the cross and the empty tomb because it's not about you. It's about Christ in you. Christ in you. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this reminder today on Easter. I pray that, that some here would be open and receptive, not just to the feelings and traditions of Easter Sunday, to the facts, and that we'd have the courage to follow those facts to the empty tomb and to stand on a foundation, a firm foundation of trust. Christ died and he rose for us. We thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.